You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara in St. Catharines, Ontario. For more information, please feel free to contact us by visiting our website, harvestniagara.ca. Father, it's hard to find words to fully express the greatness of who you are. Father, it's hard for our minds to comprehend a holy God who makes the mountains shake and tremble, whom all of creation bows before. It's hard for us to fully comprehend who you are. And yet, God, we, we, we don't claim to know fully you, but yet, God, what do we do when we come into your presence? We simply worship, God. We raise our hands and worship, for there is truly none like you. God, even as we celebrate Father's Day today, some of us have great dads, but there is none like you, O Lord. Some of us have had a rough time in in this life with with dads, and and yet, God, we realize that you're our heavenly Father, and there is none like you, O God. What a comfort it is to know that you are not just God, that you are a God who loves us, a God who reaches down to us, a God who is on our side. So God, as we worship you today, as we open up your word today, we pray, oh God, that you'd reveal yourself to us in a greater way. God, we pray today that you'd have a word for every single heart in this place. God, we pray today that our hearts would be open and attentive to what you want to teach us today from your word. For there is no voice we want to hear other than yours, God. There is no place we want to be other than this place right now as we worship you and as we open up your word for you to teach us. Thank you, God, for this privilege. We don't take it lightly. Thank you for this responsibility. We don't take it lightly. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. I invite you to take a seat this morning and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Before we get there, I have to say, Happy Father's Day, guys. Nothing, nothing. (laughs) Apparently, I'm the only one that's excited about Father's Day today. You sound like my kids, you guys do. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. We are thankful for the many guys in this church, the many men in this church who, uh, who really aim to lead well and love well. And uh, we know it's a thankless job. We know it's a hard job. I, this morning on the way out, I said to my kids, trying to remind them it was Father's Day, I'm in a little way. I'm like, Zach, I just want you to know that, you know, I love you, son. It's such an honor to be your dad. And you know what he says to me? Should be. <laughs> I said, I go, like, Happy Father's Day, Daryl. And Maya comes running up, Daddy, Daddy. I'm like, here it comes, here it comes. She's like, what are we doing for Grandpa today? <laughs> I look at Ruth, she's just laughing. <laughs> so I know it's a thankless job, it's a hard job, but we're thankful for our dads. And uh, if you have a dad today, you're, you're, it's your job to honor him today, whether he's been a success in your eyes or a failure. As believers, it's our honor and our, our, our duty to honor our dads. And uh, so I encourage you in that. I also understand today that today can be a sad day for many. So I'm not going to gloss over that either. Some of you have had a father that's either gone into the next life or one that really wasn't around in this life. And uh, so I want you to know we're praying for you today. It's going to be a hard day for many people. We as a staff are praying for you today. And uh, we just want you to know that you have a heavenly father who loves you immensely and deeply and who is the perfect dad, far greater than any of us ever could be on this earth. And so I want to turn your eyes to Jesus today and, uh, and help you celebrate Father's Day in that way. Don't we all have a great dad, ultimately? Amen. Don't we all have a great dad, ultimately? A dad who's given us his word and a dad who's 
revealed himself to us through his word. Uh, Today, we're gonna be in Romans chapter eight, verses 31 to 34. And simply this, simply this, you see the the text here, and you've probably read the text beforehand as we know where we're going. Uh, We are on the home stretch of Romans chapter eight, where where the finish line is in view. And as we round the last bend, we see this billboard in Romans chapter eight with a picture of ourselves and God on it with one slogan that every Christian ought to know and embrace. And it's simply this, God is on my side. God is on my side. This is really the overarching message of Romans 8. Because of the gospel, because I have a God that is not just with me, but a God that is in me, he is totally for me. You believe that today? You have a God that is totally for you. We can easily be like, yep, I believe that today. And yet we know that we can walk throughout this life and totally miss that for for many days and many months and many years. And we can live like it's not true. But today I just want to bring you back to the, the basic reality of the gospel. This is the basic reality of the gospel that we can't move on from. It is simply this, God is for me. God is for me. If you're like me, it makes me scratch my head a little bit. And I, I know the depravity of my own heart. You see this, this kind of, hopefully not, but I know you have this image of me that is not quite correct. You have this higher image of me sometimes and I try to communicate to you that I want you to have because in the depravity of my own heart, I know like, man, I don't deserve anybody loving me the way God does. And when I read this text, I'm like, is this really, you ever wonder this, is this really about me? I can see how this plays out in everybody else's life, but really, is God really for me? It's true. This is true for all of us. Say, look at what it says. Just a few verses we're going to read, 31 to 34. I'm praying that by the end of this, you will see the billboard in your heart that God is on my side. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things, to all the things we've read and studied over the last number of weeks? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is intercede, who, is, who indeed is interceding for us. It's basic. You've read it before. Probably many times you've shared it with others, but do you really believe this in your heart today? Three things that I pray we will see out of this text this morning. The first is this. If God is for me, this is true for your life and my life today. He shuts down my oppressors. God shuts down my oppressors. What shall we say to these things? What do we have to say about chapter eight as we look at all the truths here, how there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ, how we are set free from the law of sin and death, how we no longer have to walk according to the destructive sinful desires, but now can walk according to the way God designed. The fact that God has given us a brand new mind in, in the Holy Spirit and allows us to see the, the world in a different way, the full reality that we have been brought into God's family 
that God is, God is covered from top to bottom as we looked at last week. What do we say to these things? What do we say to these things? Hopefully, you don't just leave here going like, oh, that was an interesting sermon. Hopefully, we leave here going like, wow, what a God we serve. What do we say? I got nothing to say, but thank you, Jesus. Because here's the summary of it all. It's simply this. If God is for me, then who can be against me? Think about that for a minute. If God is for you, this isn't just anybody that's for you. This is God. If God is for you, then who can be against you? It's worth a little bit of thought, isn't it? If God is truly for me, then who can be against me? It's an astounding reality considering that, that not too long ago, all of us were in the same place. We were lined up on the opposite side of the battlefield from God. Under God's righteous wrath and his indignation, we were enemies of God. But, but the moment we realized that and we're like, man, we're on the losing team, like, and we threw up that white flag of surrender in, in faith and repentance, here's what God did. He brought us from actively working against us to being on his side, to being an ally on his team, a friend of God. This, brothers and sisters, is an astounding truth. We can't just, oh yeah, we know that already. Let's move on. And when he brought us to his side, this is what it means. It means that he is for us. Consider who is for us. For who is for us? For God is for us. It's not like a little G God. It's not a figment of your imagination or your greatest hope. This is God Almighty. This is Al Shaddai who is for us. Meaning the all-powerful one. First introduced to this name, El Shaddai, or God Almighty, in Genesis 17, verse 1, when God appeared to Abraham, he said this, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. God Almighty, I have ultimate power and ultimate might. We see further evidence of this in Isaiah chapter 40. Ever read Isaiah 40 recently? This is one of my favorite passages of the Bible. It paints this picture of God that is second to none. This picture of God sitting high and throned above the circle of the earth and he holds all the waters in the hollow of his hand, measuring the breadth, the heavens with the breadth of his hand. He, he rulers of the world, who, what are they before God? He brings them to nothing and he raises them up. It just shows God's absolute sovereign power and control over every created thing. Then we read in Nahum 1.5 how the, 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 the mountains quake before him. This is the God that is talking about here. If God is for you, who could be against you? This is a God that's not dead. It's not a fairy tale. This is a God who's alive today. This is the same God that Isaiah 4, or that Psalm 46, 1 to 3 says, that God is my refuge and strength, my very present help in times of trouble. It says in that passage, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. God is for us. This is good news today. God is for us. Some of us get this up here, but man, it's so hard to get it down here. And some of us, our whole Christian lives have been living like this God. We get the picture of God, but we've been living like this God, this Al Shaddai, God Almighty. He's against us. We sing the right songs, we say the right things, and the rest of our lives we live in fear. Like, man, God's coming to crush me. If you're saved, you don't have to live in that fear any longer. 
If you don't know Jesus today, there is a holy, righteous fear you ought to have because the reality is, is that God is not for you. He's for you and that he sent his son, but you're still on the other side. But if you're saved today, know this, that God is not waiting to push you down. He is there to raise you up. God is not looking to pummel you. He's looking to protect you. He is on your side and he is, he is rooting for you. He's beside you. He's sticking up for you. If he is for you, who can come against you? Who, who can come against us? What's the natural response to that? What is the biblical response to that? Who can come against us? No one. No one. Well, Satan, he's a pretty powerful, pretty powerful dude, right? He's strong. We know he prowls around like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. He's coming against me all the time. I feel it. I know it. And he, he's stronger than I am. Do you realize this, that on the cross... Jesus totally crushed the power of Satan. Sure, he still has a big roar. He still likes to intimidate you, but he's got no more teeth and no more claws. He pretends he's this big man on campus. He still thinks he's the king of the jungle, but is he? No, if God is for you, he's crushed the enemy. What about other people? Man, we have this happen in our lives so often. Other people come against us and they rise up from seemingly nowhere and, and we get scared. We're like, man, they, they're stronger than, I know God's for me, but look at all the things that are happening. Can, can, can anyone stand against you? According to Isaiah 40, you can put the whole, whole world powers together and, and you put God beside you and guess what? Though? Even the, the world powers will shake and tremble and quake because God can bring them down in a heartbeat. It doesn't matter how many people come against you. It doesn't matter. If you have God on your side, God plus one equals majority. God plus one equals majority. You only need one vote to have a majority. God. We see so many evidences of this in the Bible. We see so many evidences of this in the world around us. Let me give you some from the scriptures to help you see how this is a truth that has been throughout all of history. If God is for you, no one can be against you. Consider Elijah for one. Remember him? First, first Kings chapter eight, 18. Remember him? He's a prophet that was in the wilderness. God, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. And, and then he's called to this duel of the gods, really, was what it was. And it was, it was Elijah versus 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. So it was Elijah against 850. I wouldn't be confident in that little scenario, would you? And what happens? It's like a do or die duel, right? It's like, it's, it's like we're gonna prove which one's God is do or die duel, 850 to one. And so they prepare their altars, they prepare their bulls and, and 850 are calling on their gods, they're dancing, doing all kinds of crazy things and shouting and nothing's happening. Elijah gets to his, what does he do? He, he douses it with water just to make it good for effect, I think. I think that's confidence he has in his God, right? He's like, keep dancing, boys, keep cutting yourself. Like he douses it with water. He calls on God. What happens? Fire comes down and consumes everything. Like the, the bowl, the wood, the water, it's gone. Well, the 150 prophets were hightailing it out of there only to their death. If God is for us, who could be against us? Consider Nehemiah. Remember the Nehemiah, the, the call? The book is all about this. God calls this guy to rebuild the temple. Who can do that? Nehemiah's, okay, God, if you're gonna do this, you gotta help me. God gives him everything he needs. And then, of course, what happens is like everybody rallies against him and like, we're gonna stop this. All the, en all the enemies came together. We're gonna stop this. They even made up some conspiracies against Nehemiah. What does Nehemiah do? It was so bad. He's like, guys, we gotta pray. So he, it, it's, it was so dangerous for him. You know what he was doing? He was actually building with one hand and told him, build with one hand, keep, a, keep one hand on your sword. 
But in the middle of chapter four, he says this. In the middle of chapter four, he says this. He says, don't worry, guys, our God will fight for us. And by the end of Nehemiah, what's happened? The walls are built. Everybody's in amazement. They're bringing glory to God. If God is for you, who can be against you? Consider David. We love this guy because he's so honest and so real. And he spent most of his life, what he spent most of his life doing, he was running. He wasn't the hunter. He was the hunted pursued by all kinds of enemies, including his very own son. In Psalm 56, it says this, David was oppressed and he was trampled and he was attacked. He was hunted down, enemies abounding. There is fear. But this is what he said in Psalm 56, verses nine and 10. This I know, this I know. I don't know much. I don't know much. I'm scared out of my wits. I'm hiding in caves. I'm looking for food. They're everywhere. They're on the hills. They're coming. But this I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Why did God give us all of these examples? So we could read them and tell them to our kids at nighttime and put them to bed and go on throughout our merry day, or merry way? No, because he wants us to have the same confidence. If God is for Elijah, if God is for Nehemiah, if God is for David, God is for all those who are his. God is for you. And here's the truth. That just like these other guys in the Bible, we're going to have opposers and we're going to have oppressors, but yet, guess what? If we have God, we are untouchable apart from God's plans and purposes for our lives. We know we don't have this little like invisible shield around us. It says it later on. We're going to talk about it next week. We know all the things of this earth affect us. We know that, that the same things that affect unbelievers affect us. We know that there's no perfect life in Christ. But here's the truth. If God is for you, then, then nobody else can touch you apart from God's plans and purposes for your life. We have God on our side. Couldn't even really think of a really good illustration to how to those are pretty good, but like a good modern day, like, you know, that resident, how, how do we illustrate this? The best one I could come up with, with was this. It was Wayne Gretzky and Dave Semenko. Everybody knows Wayne Gretzky, right? Who's heard of Wayne Gretzky? There you go. You're with me a little bit. Anyone heard of Dave Semenko? A few of you guys who like watch hockey. Here's what made Gretzky so good. He was this little wussy guy that was good and fast, but he was not tough at all. Just look at him now. He was even skinnier back then. And what made him so effective on the ice was he had a bodyguard that was on the ice with him like almost all the time. And he was so good that all his opponents, all they wanted to do was trip him and slash him and hook him and pull him down, but yet they didn't touch him. You know why? Because they knew if they did that, this guy, Dave Semenko, who's really, who cares, got league minimum salary for many years to get his face bashed in, would show up and stand up for Wayne Gretzky. Dave Semenko played year after year after year and amassed over 1,200 penalty minutes in his career, almost as many points as Wayne Gretzky had. The unsung hero that, honestly, Gretzky would have not been nearly as good without somebody standing before him. And every time an opposer stepped up, guess what Semenko would do? He'd sit him down. You're going to step up? I'm going to sit you down. Toughest guy in the league for years. Toughest guy in the league. Well, you know what? We have somebody on our side that's way, bigger, way bigger than the toughest guy in the league. We're talking like a powerful God of the universe. What? You're going to rise up against my kid? You're going to rise up against my kid? Like, sit down. 
Oh, you're going to bring it again. You're going to bring it again? Sit down again. I can bring it again. You're going to bring it again? The thing is, God's never lost a battle. Semenko had a few, a few bad outings. God has never lost a battle. We have this confidence as we walk through life. We have this confidence as the opposition arises around us. If you're going to live for God in this life, guess what? You're going to be opposed. Let's just be honest. I want Jesus in this comfy, cozy life too. It doesn't work that way. If you're going to live for God, you're going to be opposed. But the promise is when you're opposed, God will be for you. And he will not let anyone touch you in a way that is not going to accomplish his purposes, his plans in your life and in those lives around you. There are going to be times, let's be honest, as believers, where you are going to get criticized. You are going to be made fun of and mocked. You are going to be opposed. You are going to be ostracized. You are going to be gossiped about. And ultimately, some of you might even be, people might try to eliminate you. We've seen it. We wish this part wasn't part of life, but it is. We've seen opposition arise from places that are like, what in the world? Why, why is my life so difficult? Why does it seem that everyone's against me? There's a spiritual war going on around us that we can't see. Some of you might even be there today. Family members, even spouses, like rising up and like there's this angst. It seems like they're out to get you without any real cause. The, the boss some one day walks into the office and he just, he's just not for you for no logical reason. He's making your life a living and you're like, well, he's going to ruin me. He's going to fight. What's going to happen? We, some of you in school, teachers and profs, they find out you're a Christian. And what happens? They, they put you in this little category and kind of like make it their goal to give you bad marks and to friends turn on us, neighbors. Even sometimes from within, fellow Christians, quote unquote, being used to the enemy. There's trash talking and we lose sight of the fact. Remember Al Shaddai? We lose sight of the fact of Al Shaddai. We start looking at the circumstance. We're like, oh man, this is going to do me in for sure. Like I'm done. God's abandoned me. God's, God's, what's the truth of scripture today? Who is for you? God is for you. And if God is for you, guess what? He will sit down your opposition before they bring you down. So we can today, as believers, we can today have this confidence that people look at us and say, where's your confidence coming from? How can you not be crumbling? I, I just threatened your job. How can you not be crumbling? I just told you I'm going to leave you. How can you not be crumbling? We're attacking your character from every angle. How can you not be crumbling? You know how we can not crumble? Because we know. Bring it on. God will not allow me to go down at your hands. Job 42.2 says this, nothing or no one can thwart the purposes of God in my life. God is for me. Who can rise against me? No one can rise against me ultimately. Oh, it's gonna come, but are they gonna take me away from God's plan? They, they cannot possibly take you away from God's plan. God is bigger than that and stronger than that. We don't have to fear or sweat and stew it and sweat about it and stew about it. Instead, we can rest in God and love God. And what's our goal in this life? Be faithful to God and leave the rest to God, knowing that He is for us. He's not against us, He's for us. We can have confidence. I know, I know it's easier said than done. But yet this is a truth that we have to grab a hold of in our lives if we're going to live in the wholeness and the victory that the Holy Spirit gives us. God's not against you. He's for you. How do we know that? How do we know that? Because look what verse 32 says. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How do we know that God is really for us? Look no further than the cross. Look no further than the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you're like me, there's sometimes in life we lay awake at night and we're like, God, can I be sure of this? Can I be sure of this? How do I know? How do I really know? I know your word says, but how do we really know? How do we really know? Because God gave his son up for us and he gave his, if he gave his son up for us, what else will he not give us that we need, not want, but need in this life to accomplish his purposes? God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also give us all things? You want proof? You want a sign? Happened a couple thousand years ago. It's, it's a big stone that was rolled away. It's a big cross that stands before us, even behind me today, to remind us weekly of the power of God. Are you really for me, God? Are you really gonna stand with me in the harshest and most confusing times? You can ask God those questions. Davis gave, gave us a great example of that, right? He asked all the hard questions to God. He's like, oh, I can't ask this question to God. I can't show any weakness here. He was authentic. God, are you really? Are you really? Can I trust you? Can I trust you? You know what God's answer is? Like, of course you can trust me. For real, you're gonna ask the question? I gave my son for you. the most precious person in the universe I was willing to give up for you? I don't think you need to ask that question anymore. Whether this is for real or not. 1 Peter 2.4 says that, you know, we always preach that, you know, I'm God's most special chosen. We are special and chosen to God, but we're not the most special and chosen by God. Guess who is? Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 4 says that Jesus was God's chosen and most precious. Yet in verse 18 of chapter three, he says this, but yet he allowed him to suffer and to die for sins, for, the, for sins of the righteous and for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Oh yeah, God is for you. One word, Jesus read these words, God gave up his son for us. And I want to once again help you understand the full reality of this because I think we read these words and we so often just kind of gloss over them and say, oh yeah, God gave up his son for me. I know that, I know that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Deeper truths, please. You can't get a deeper truth than this. Let this reality once again revive your heart and your desire for the Lord, your love for God. God willingly gave up his son for you and I. Not because we were good, not because we were like these faithful people who were living moral lives, but because his love for us and his grace, he saw us in our immorality and in our rebellion. He says, man, there is no hope for them apart from me. I'm gonna send my son. Like, this is astounding to me to give up your son for somebody else. Think about it. We have a hard time giving up our kids for a week of summer camp. Ooh, I don't know if we can do it. Then when it comes to college, we're like, four years? Are you kidding me? You're asking me to give up my child for four years, God? We have a hard time with that. Some in this room have actually taken even the 
greater step and have watched your child go be with God forever. Man, that's hard. Makes me a little bit uneasy in my stomach thinking summer camp in college, but I've been there weeping with people as they've watched their children going to be with heaven. It's not easy to give up a child, is it? And yet here's what God did to show that he is for you. Here's what God did to show that he was for you. He actually enlisted his son. Hey, son, we're signing you up for a mission. Oh, yeah, dad, wait, what kind of mission is this? I'm actually going to leave heaven and go to earth, and actually it's going to be a death mission. You're actually going to go to the cross on behalf of all these people who are doing absolutely everything that I am saying not to do and are scoffing at me. You're going to go and actually save them that the enemy might not be able to take more over more, any more ground on earth, that the enemy might not take any more hostage. You're going to go to the front lines. You're going to sacrifice your own life and you're going to come back by way of a cross and a tomb. Because as much as I love you, I love them with great fervency and passion. This is a love we don't see here on earth anywhere because it's a love that comes only from the Father. This is what true love is. You can put all those silly ideas the world tells you what love is. This is true love, the true love that God showed every one of us in here today on the cross. This is a love that makes my head spin. And think this, if he was willing to do this for you, what else is he not gonna be willing to do on your behalf? This is the ultimate. D.L. Moody says it like this. D.L. Moody says it like this. Suppose you and I were to go into a, one of the finest jewelry stores in the world and the proprietor there brings out a lovely, the most expensive, loveliest diamond, and he says to you, hey, guess what? This is yours. I just wanted to look at it. <laughs> oh, no, no, like, touch it, take it, it's yours. What would you say to that? Like, for real? He says, like, the, the owner giving you this expensive diamond, and then, and then you hesitating and asking for a case to carry it home in. My friend, he says, since God gave his son to die for you, don't you think he's going to give you everything that is necessary, keyword necessary, in this life and the life to come? If God has already given you the greatest gift, the rest pale in comparison, why would he withhold from you what you need? Don't want you to get this wrong here many people have interpreted this the wrong way and they're like, he'll give us all things? Great, get my Sears catalog Christmas wish list out. I have some things that I want that God ought to give me. All things isn't what you want. What is it for? It's what you need. It's not like now we can go home and place our order and expect that tomorrow morning from, our, from the heavenly online order place, we're gonna have uh, what we want delivered on demand right to our doorstep. But this means all things, God is gonna give you all things you need to accomplish his purposes for your life in his infinite wisdom. What does this mean? This means two things. He's gonna give you every spiritual blessing and every physical provision you need. It's not rocket science. There's no like, well, help me understand this, pastor. It's simple as this. He's gonna give you every spiritual blessing and every physical provision you need to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in your life and through your life. 
Ephesians 1.3 and 2 Peter 1.3 both say the same thing in, in different ways. They say that God is gonna give us every spiritual blessing. What do we need? What are the all things we need to accomplish God's purpose for our lives? It's, it's not from outside, is it? First and foremost, it's from within, right? God promises he's gonna provide that for you. I don't know about you, but I spend most of my time praying in my times of desperate need and my times of thinking about my own life. I spend more time praying about the, not God, give me more, give me more. God, help me have faith. God, I don't have enough faith. Give me courage, Lord. Give me wisdom. Give me strength and humility and dependence and give me love. God promises he's gonna give you all those things. This means to us some pretty significant things, I think. I think we too quickly come to the end of our rope and we give up forgetting that God has everything we need. We too quickly say, I can't or I won't, and we forget that God has everything we need. Here's, here's what this means. It means when we're at a loss in our lives, guess what God does? He gives you the encouragement, the exact encouragement you need to keep on going. When you are down and out and you're just like, I can't do another day, God, I can't do another day. I am done. He gives you the strength to roll one foot out of bed, the other one to follow, and to get moving for the glory of God. When you're at your wit's end, you're like, I can't take another source of criticism or ridicule, God. Give, get me out of this. God's like, oh, I'm gonna do something better than get you out of this so you can see the glory of, of myself. I am gonna give you a thicker skin to let those things roll off your back and put your hope in me. When you're marginalized, God will give you a spiritual blessing to remind you that you can't limit God. Others may marginalize you. Others may hem you in, but you can't limit God. When you're persecuted, he fills you with the understanding and the joy that you are identifying with Jesus, your greatest hope and desire. When you're on the verge of death, here's what, here's what he does with all things. He gives you peace and he sets your heart aglow with glory. Again, this isn't a passage where now we have this invisible shield around us. Well, I can do all things. I can go out and conquer the world. No, we get low before God and say, God, give us grace and strength to do all things that you desire for my life. He provides us every spiritual blessing. He also provides us every physical provision that we need. Matthew 6, 25 to 33, Philippians 4, 19. Again, two verses saying the same thing in different ways. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches. All things that we need, God has and will give us. In other words, if we don't have it, guess what? We don't need it for what God wants us to accomplish in this life. There's nothing that we need physically. There's nothing that we need physically that God doesn't have in a storehouse in heaven in abundance that he's waiting for us to ask for, that he might give it to us. His storehouse in heaven has more things than we could ever begin to understand. Or like, I wouldn't picture God having that. He has it all. And they never take holidays. They never go on back order. It's constantly filled. And God will give it to us when we need it to accomplish his aim. I don't want you running out of here and now thinking you need, you need, you need, and God's gonna give it to you. You need, you need, all these things. That, man, if I only had this and I could serve God better. No, everything you need to serve God wholeheartedly right now, according to his plan, you have in your possession. We don't need more to serve God better. We have everything we need right now. That's the kind of God we serve. He gives us everything we need before we need it.
Think about some of those illustrations I used earlier. Elijah, what did Elijah need? He needed fire from heaven. What did he get? Fire from heaven. What did Nehemiah need? He needed supplies. He needed people. He needed protection. What did God give him? Everything he needed and more to fulfill the rebuilding of the temple. What did David need? He needed to be a fast little fella because he was running his whole life. God gave him speed, obviously. He needed to be pretty crafty. He had to outsmart the enemy every step of the way. And guess what God gave him? Craftiness. God gave him everything he needed. What will God not give you that you need for his purposes? What's your role in this? Trust and ask. It's simply trust and ask. Instead of getting upset when we don't have, we just simply say, thank you, God. Obviously, I have everything I need to accomplish your purposes. What's your purposes? When we, get the, we order up one thing, we get a shipment of something else. Instead of getting mad and sending it back, we ought to embrace it and say, okay, God, you gave me this, so obviously I need to use this for your glory. How do you want me to invest this for your glory? God is for me. He shuts down my oppressors. He fills up my every need to accomplish his purposes. And here's the last one. This is a significant one I think that we are gonna leave here rejoicing in. He silences my accuser. He silences my accuser. Not only does he give us all that we need, he shuts the mouth of the enemy. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Notice how in the last sermon we talked about the Holy Spirit interceding for us. Look how here in this, in this passage, Jesus Christ is also interceding for us. That's a pretty sweet truth, isn't it? We're covered from every angle, and yet, and yet the, bigger, the bigger point of these two verses is this, is God is going to silence my accuser. Who's going to bring any charge against us? This is like a legal charge. This isn't like a, a superficial. This is like an actual legal charge. It's talking about a forensic or legal charge in nature, making a formal court accusation against us. Who does that? We know one person does that constantly. Who does that? Satan. And yet God said he's going to be accusing you your whole life. He's going to be always looking for ways to file a new charge against you, to bring another angle to court. It's like, hey, charge them on this. There's some way that we condemn them. Do this. But guess who's sitting on the throne? Who's sitting on the throne? Jesus says, who's our defender? What a losing battle, eh? That little guy doesn't give up. He's always taking everything that we do and he's like, okay, I can accuse him about this for sure. Jesus, what about this? Can you condemn him for this? Can you bring him to trial for this? And Jesus looks at him and he's like, hey, I'm the judge. Like, I'm also the defender. They've been declared innocent. I took care of that a couple thousand years ago on the cross. Stop bringing these accusations against me. They're not gonna stand. And yet, Revelation 12, 10 tells us that the enemy in such persistence and such arrogance and such whatever day and night, as the Holy Spirit and Jesus are interceding for us, day and night, you know what the Satan is doing? He's accusing us before God. And here's how that little beggar works. He knows he can't get anywhere in the official high court with it, so you know what he does? He knows every time, he's like, Jesus, throw that charge out. I already covered that. Throw that charge out. Cover that. Throw that charge out. Cover that. You know what he does? You know what he does? 
Knowing that that's a losing battle, he takes those accusations and he brings them to the door of our house and rings the doorbell with them constantly. With little court orders that are fake that he made up, trying to get us to again buy into this fear to try to get us again live in this guilt and shame that Jesus Christ has already covered for us. And yet God is for us. And so here's what God does through his word. He silences any charge that the accuser brings. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The true answer is no one. It doesn't say it here, but that's the logical. No one. It's God who justifies. What does justify mean? It's God who saves us and covers our sin. Who is to condemn? We heard this in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Who is it to condemn? Satan wants to condemn us for sure. He wants you to live like you're condemned even though you're free. Who is it to condemn? Well, no one is going to condemn us because Jesus Christ is the one who's the ultimate judge. God is for us, not against us. He's not listening to the accusations of the enemy any longer. And you know what that means? We don't have to listen to them either. Not about you, but I constantly have the accuser in my ear telling me things that aren't true about me that want to take my heart to discouragement, my place away from my focus on love on the Lord. He's, you guys with me on this? I assume you are. If you're saved, it's true because he hates believers, the enemy. And here's the freedom of Christ in this passage. Here's the freedom of God being for us. We can shut that mouth of the enemy and replace that with the truth of God's word. So when Satan tells you, here's some of the things he tells me, I assume he tells you this. When Satan tells you that you can't be a good Christian, because remember that little thing you thought about yesterday, the thing that came out of your mouth last week, or that sin that nobody knows about, when he tells you that, you can say, that's garbage because God has forgiven me for that. When the enemy tells you that God can't love you because you struggle to read his word and your times in prayer what you, they aren't what they should be, and when he tells you that you just plain stink, you can tell him to take that idea and run somewhere else with it because you are freed from that. When the enemy accuses you and tells you that you don't deserve answers to prayer because you're such a failure as a mom or a dad, and who's been the perfect parent here, anyone? But yet somehow we all feel like we're the only one who's not doing the perfect job. Where does that come from? It comes from Satan. Because <laughs> I know most of you are trying to be the best way you know how, a good mom, a good dad, a good brother, a good sister, a good husband, a good wife. And so the enemy comes and accuses you and says, you know, you suck at that. You know what you can say? It's not true. I don't have to live like I stink at this. When... The accuser comes and tells you that you shouldn't speak in small group because you're not smart enough or you don't have the lingo down yet or you're not a good enough Christian yet. You're a second-class Christian. You can say enough of that. And the accuser tells you you should stop sharing your faith because your Christian life may be no glory story like everybody else's. You can say enough. And the accuser tells you to stop dreaming of doing things for God and that you're useless and talentless and good for nothing to no one. You can take that thought and stuff it right back down his throat and open up God's word and see that God has something completely different to say about you than that. You know what Satan is? He's like that little pesky kid that used to walk around the schoolyard ridiculing everybody. Remember that kid? 
Remember one day, a kid in our school, he followed me out all the way, just like chirping in my ear, chirping in my ear, chirping in my ear. Until you had enough. Remember turning around and saying, stop, to which I got a punch in the side of the head, to which I just lost it. I was little, but I was pretty wiry. And he didn't expect me to fight back. And, and so he's still chirping as he punched me in the head. I could just, it, it went from my toes to my fist quicker than I could say toes to fist, you know? And I just started swinging. It wasn't pretty, I'm sure. There was no form to it. It was just like swinging hands and arms. And I was kneeing. And by the time I was done, he had his head down like this. And I was dropping elbows on. And my friends were like, stop, Daryl, stop. Came up all teary-eyed. And I was like, what did I just do? He was my friend from that point on. It's amazing how that works, isn't it? <laughs> but like enough of the accusations, enough of the ridicule, enough of the torment, like enough. Here's the thing. God gives us the strength inside by the power of Jesus to stand up to the enemy in the same way. Enough. Maybe not throw physical fists, but we can throw these things at the enemy when he comes. We can throw back to him, Isaiah 50, verse 9, when the accusations come. No, that's not true. God is for me. I am not a second class. I am not a failure. God is for me. Listen to what Isaiah 50, verse 7 and 9 says. We can throw this back at the enemy. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me, because behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Nobody, because the voice of our God drowns out the accusations of our enemy. And here's what God says we are in his word. Here's some things that God says. The enemy accuses, God affirms. The enemy accuses, God affirms. Here's what God says about you and I today. Here's the power of this passage, the power of being saved in Jesus Christ. He says some of these things. You can write them down if you have time because I'm gonna rifle right through them. We'll put, put, them, put them online somewhere. The judge and the king, his voice booms these out when Satan accuses. He says, but, but I am forgiven, you are forgiven. But you are reconciled to God, but you are rescued, but you are redeemed, but you are bought with a price. The blood of Jesus, but I belong to God now. I am known by God. I am chosen by God. I am justified before God. I am accepted. I am saved. I am alive. I am free. I am secure and I am sealed. Amen? Amen. That'll shut up the enemy pretty quick. Here's the deal. We forget that Al Shaddai is for us and not against us. And so we let the enemy badger us through life to the point where we become in this little hollow shell of loving God and living for God and living on the truth of God. Some of us don't know our Bibles well enough because we don't read them all week to know that these things are true. How do you combat the enemy? You combat him with scripture. Where's the power in scripture? When his little gums are flapping, you just gotta start talking back with all the things you know are true about God. That's not true. I am forgiven. That's not true. I am actually alive. That's not true. I am secure. You can't take me from God. That's not true. I am sealed. 
Who's going to condemn you? Not Satan. Because of Jesus Christ, because of the reality of the gospel, we have hope in every circumstance and scenario of life. That God is going to sit down our oppressors. God is going to fill our every need. And God is going to silence our accuser. Because Jesus Christ died for us. He delivered me from all of my sin already, past, present, and future. Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, declaring victory over the enemy, over sin and death. Because Christ is at the right hand of the Father, because he is alive and ruling right now with God, and he's going to make the final call. The enemy doesn't have the final call. He's going to make you think he has the final call. He doesn't have the final call. And the verdict's already out. The verdict is innocent, and God's child loved And here's how else we know that we have these confidences because Jesus is right now at the right hand of God interceding for us. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says that in all things and whatever we come up with in life, in every scenario of life, Jesus is interceding for us. Hebrews 7 25, Jesus lives to make intercession for us. He's not just ruling the world. He's actually praying to God on our behalf. So even those days, maybe even like today, you're such in such a frenzy to get out the door and you're like, man, I forgot to pray today. I forgot to pray for myself today. Guess what? The Holy Spirit has you covered. Remember we learned that last week? The Holy Spirit's the moans and groans are like, oh, what do I do? He, he, God, this is what he means. But also Jesus prayed for you today as you left the house without you even realizing he consistently prays for you. That you would know these truths, that you'd know that God is on your side, that you'd know that everything you need in life is yours as God wills, that you'd know in this life that you don't have to listen to the stupid accusations of the enemy anymore, but you are, uh, your identity is now in Jesus Christ. What a powerful text, hey? I know you're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The key is what you do with this tomorrow morning. The key is what you do this Wednesday afternoon when the opposition does rise up, when all of a sudden you feel like I have really not what I need to get the job done for the Lord when, when the accusations do start chirping and you're in the middle of the night on Friday and the enemy is all over you like white on rice. The key to this whole thing is what you do with this. Will you choose this day to serve the Lord? Will you choose this day to turn your gaze to the Father? Will you choose this day to keep loving Jesus and living for Jesus, trusting that these things are true? Will you choose today to rally believers around you to remind you of these truths and encourage you in these truths? Will you choose today to set your sights on Jesus? Because if you have him, what else do you need? If you have him, who else do you need? The whole world could turn their back on you and leave you all by yourself. But don't forget this. God plus one is the majority. Let me pray. Thank you, God, for these truths of the scriptures today. Lord, I pray that you'd apply them to every single heart in this place as you see fit according to the, in a way that only the Holy Spirit can do that. God, may this not just be an intellectual exercise this morning of now I know, but God, I pray this would be a, a spiritual endeavor, God, where, where you put these truths deep into souls and hearts where not just do I know now, but this is who I am and how I live. 
God, for those that are in this place, and I'm sure they're here, that are still on the opposition side of God, that have still not thrown up that white flag of surrender, would you help them see this morning that they are on the losing side, that they can't win and they're going to spend eternity apart from you, God, in eternal destruction. Would you help them see that, God, and produce within them now a holy longing to be on God's side, to, to have God as their friend and their Lord and their Savior as their Heavenly Father. God, would you put faith in those hearts right now to believe those that don't believe? Father, for those who are struggling to really believe today that you are on their side and life has been set in such a way that things just are feeling empty and you're, they're lonely and overwhelming, Father, I pray to you that you'd give them trust in the deepest part of their souls, that they would trust you, O oh God. And you'd help them see that you are Al Shaddai, that you are with them and near them and for them, and that, God, nothing can happen to them apart, of what, apart from your good plan for their lives, what we learned last week. All things work together for good. We don't see it, God. We doubt it. We fear it. But God, give us faith today to see you for who you are and to truly believe and live out the reality of a God who is for us. God, provide for our needs. God, silence the accuser in our minds. He's relentless. But God, you're greater than even him. Fill our minds with truth today. Fill our hearts with love today for you and each other. And may our feet walk in the path of righteousness. And may our feet walk towards Jesus and not away from. Thank you, God, that this whole thing is ultimately about a God who loves us enough to give us his son. Amen. You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara in St. Catharines, Ontario. For more information, please feel free to contact us by visiting our website, harvestniagara.ca.